Hello, everybody. This is Drive Me to a Leader with Mr. Red. And in this podcast, we hope to bring to you discussion, argument, and maybe just some fun on the way through. I say we're going to bring argument today. We're probably going to bring discussion, but maybe an argument because today it's just me by myself. And we're going to be talking about the philosopher, um, intellectual entertainer, I think he called himself, spiritualist Alan Watts. Um, He's no longer with us. He passed away in 1973. However, I've only just become aware of the man actually through Instagram of all places. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen it on there. People have used the song... Uh, Midnight City and used the speech he did about forget the money. I think it's meant to be inspiring to make you go and travel and and whatever else. But actually, is absolutely revolutionary guy. Um, it's complete. He's completely changed the way I see things. Every now and then, I think you get well. Actually, on a rare occasion, you get someone who just comes along and turns everything you think you know completely on its head. And that's exactly what's happened to me today. And I feel like this guy is like the final boss of that. (laughs) So um, I just want to go through a couple of speeches that he's made and maybe break them down a little bit and then I can sort of have a little discussion about that and see how we got on because it's he's an absolutely fascinating guy with just absolutely fascinating things to say. And if you don't like, um, I say it's philosophy, it's also perhaps spirituality as well and it's very deep if you don't feel like that and you want more of them you know argumentative kind of episodes then you can skip this one i keep telling people to skip my episodes but (laughs) please listen (laughs) anyway we're gonna start off with uh but we'll start off with what do you desire speech okay um I just, I'll fill in a little bit more about the guy. He started off from my understanding as a practicing theologian in the United Kingdom. I think he later moved to the United States in his later life. Um, and he got very into Eastern spirituality. And, um, do you know, what? I'll just let his words speak for itself to be perfectly honest because they are very nice. So we'll start with what do you desire? What do you desire? What makes you itch? What sort of a situation would you like? Let's suppose, I do this often in vocational guidance of students, they come to me and they say, well, we're getting out of college and we haven't the faintest idea of what we want to do. So I always ask the question, what would you like to do if money were no object? How would you really like to spend your life? Well, it's so amazing as a result of our kind of educational system, crowds of students say, well, we'd like to be painters, we'd like to be poets, we'd like to be writers. But as everybody knows, you can't earn any money that way. Or another person says, well, I'd like to live an out-of-doors life and ride horses. I said, do you want to teach in a riding school? Let's go through with it. What do you want to do? When we finally got down to something which the individual says he really wants to do, I will say to him, you do that and forget the money. Because if you say that getting the money is the most important thing, you'll spend your life completely wasting your life. You'll be doing things you don't like doing in order to go on living. That is to go on doing things you don't like doing, which is stupid. Now, I just want to say about that. 
I agree with what he says, and I don't. I'm not going to disagree with him here. I think that. I don't think he's really saying that money is the bad thing. He's not saying that you shouldn't earn money because you have to exist in the world. I'm sure he charged money for things, you know, and that's that's the point. And he goes on to say that a little bit, but I just want to make the point that I don't think he's advocating that kind of hippie lifestyle. I think he can be misinterpreted there a little bit where, you know, oh, it's not about money, man. We need to change the world. And, you know, if you're like that, fair enough. I can't particularly say that you're wrong. But I think what he's saying there is it's not all about the money. For example, I know people that are near retirement age or um, have retired or, or are about to retire and they've got to the age that they are and they want to keep working. I mean, some people want to keep working because they, they don't have the money to retire, but I'm talking about the people that I know that have the money. They have a house. They have everything in life that they want and would want. And they've come to the end and they've realized they haven't got anything to go and do because most of their life was work. That's what they made their life. That's where they made their friends. And, you know, it's fair enough. You make friends at work, definitely for sure. But that's where they are. And now they're faced with the opportunity where they don't have to do that. They can enjoy themselves. They can do what they want to do. They've got no idea what they want. And they've realized that the thing that they were chasing all their life isn't the thing that they wanted, which was the destination, which was to retire. That's, you know, all of us that do work, we're always in the back of our mind thinking, well, it's not forever. You know, it's a long time, but one day I won't have to do this. But that's not the point, is it? Because if you spend your life doing that thing and doing that job and that work and you make most of your life that work, and you make it about the money because you want to get the things that you want. You'll get to the end of that point. And I'm not saying you're going to turn your nose up the things that you've got. It's definite benefit. But what are you going to do now? Maybe it wasn't the destination after all. Maybe it was where you are, what you're doing, the memories and everything else. So that's a good point, I think. Better to have a short life that is full of what you like doing than a long life spent in a miserable way. And after all, if you do really like what you're doing, it doesn't matter what it is, you can eventually turn it to become a master of it. It's the only way to become a master of something, to be really with it. And then you'll be able to get a good fee for whatever it is. So don't worry too much that everybody, somebody is interested in everything and anything you can be interested in, you will find others that will. And I must say that hits home a little bit because I hope that some people are interested in this podcast. <laughs> There's some desperate people out there. <laughs> I'm joking. Please listen. <laughs> but it's absolutely stupid to spend your time doing things you don't like in order to go on spending things you don't like doing things you don't like, and to teach our children to follow in the same track. See, what we're doing is we're bringing up children, educating to live the same sort of lives we are living in order that way they may justify themselves and find satisfaction in life bringing up their children to bring up their children to do the same thing. So it's all wrench and no vomit. It never gets there. And so therefore, it's so important to consider this question. What do I desire? 
And I don't necessarily think that's the end of that speech, but I don't necessarily think he's there saying, don't have children, don't do it. <laughs> I, I think he's saying that it's not just about bringing them up, getting to live the same life of work or pursuit that you're living to get to the destination that you want and then they get to their destination and then the others get to their destination and then it never really gets the way you want it to be which is that peace that balance that just knowing yourself by never knowing yourself and i think that's what he's saying there because i think you can misinterpret what he's saying there is never have children never earn money and he's not saying that he's saying that you can do it in a in a way that just makes you have the most wonderful life, right? I don't know. Maybe you don't agree. Maybe life is work and money and, you know, maybe we'll have an episode about that. Maybe we'll have an episode about money versus enjoyment. I don't know. That sounds like an episode. Maybe we'll do that. Okay. Um, I want to move on, transition a little bit, not too far away to the pursuit of pleasure and I think that that carries on from the what do I desire speech but it takes it just a little bit deeper so I'll go on with that it's important to consider this question what do I desire when we answer that question in a naive way we figure out that what we want is to control everything but that's not really what you want right? You want a surprise. You want a pleasant surprise. Now, I think that this is the greatest possible lesson for the Western world to learn because we get so hung up on the idea of power, of control, of being able to make thing, everything go the right way. And we never thought it through. If you get control of it, what are you going to do? And that's incredibly true, right? If you get involved with a new video game, maybe it's got a big world to it, it's got lots of things you don't understand, you go to a new place of work, you start a new hobby, you start a new club, everything is new, or you join a new club would be better, everything is new and it's all a mystery and it's within that mystery that that's where the, the pleasure is, isn't it? A little bit of challenge, a little bit of unknown, everything seems full of magic. And then the more you know, the more you control, the more you get set up, the less magic there is. I mean, I think children are a great example of this because life is magic, right? To children, life is magic. And then we get older and we think, well, it's not magic. But isn't it? Has it really changed or have we changed? Is life still magic or is our perception of life changed? And that's really the point, isn't it? I think actually it's us that have changed and not really the way life is a buddha is one who has gone through the gods he was a bit eastern because the gods have power buddhism imagines all kinds of heaven worlds inhabited by all kinds of gods and the supreme of all the gods is called ishvara i'm sorry if i pronounce these wrong i'm trying my best in this but i'm not a follower of buddhism so but it's said that of all of those gods in their paradise worlds are in sansara they are in the round of life and death, and what goes up must come down. They are immensely successful. They're at the peak of their power, spiritual power, but they're not delivered yet because they still don't know what they want. 
Therefore, in the exploration of what you want, you get to the point where you have all the pleasures at your command. And eventually you get like the ancient Romans who had to go every Saturday to the Colosseum for a show that really had to surpass everything because they had public baths, they had prostitutes, they had every kind of luxury. And you know, if we look at our world now, I mean, he, he passed away in 1973. So if he's saying that they had all the pleasures of their command in, in the 60s and the 70s, what's it like now with the internet and you know, deliveries to your door? I know that sounds a bit trivial, but I don't even have to go outside and walk to the shop. Someone brings it to me. And, and it, most of the time, it's free delivery now, right? Everything is, is fast. Everything is now. Everything is in control. And it gets to the point where have we risen the bar for pleasure so high that, wow, where does it go? He goes on. But when they went to see one of the big shows that people like Nero would put on, they would have, for example, float surfing the Colosseum, all full of slave girls from the distant parts of the Mediterranean who were garland with flowers and waving at the crowd innocently and the next minute they would release wild lions into the arena to eat up all the slave girls i don't know if they did that but it wouldn't surprise me you know they got a big sadistic kick out of that because you see pursuing pleasure beyond a certain place takes you into what the buddhist calls the narkara world which is to say the hells in other words I was going to explain that, but he goes on and explains it better than me. So, in other words, when you have explored pleasure to its ultimate limit, the only thing you can get a kick out of is pain. So, naturally, you descend from the diva world, devil world, at the top of the world to the narco world at the bottom, where it shows all of these beings in states of torture. How true is that? Really? Let's look at the political world, and I don't want to make things political, but it's a good example. If you have people that are very extreme left-minded, people that are very extreme right-minded, you might say they believe different things, but ultimately the way they act on those beliefs is going to be very similar because the more <clears throat> further you get away from the center, the more it spindles round, right? It's very profound, isn't it, really? Now, of course, the priests say when they're bringing up children, if you do bad things, you'll end up in the hell world. But this is a very inadequate way of showing how you get to that hell world because how do they know the best way to bring up children? How do they know the best way to do something? And the problem is, is I feel like when you try and control people and what they believe, and ultimately this is why I have some issues with religion, but I won't talk about that. Um, once you talk about what you believe and then you're trying to control others to do the same thing, ultimately... What's going to happen is you just you're not balanced. You're one side or the other, and then the actions become more extreme. And it's a very inadequate way of explaining how you get to that world. Because, for example, if I say you avoid hell by doing everything right, controlling what you do, and living that good moral life, well, actually, in my mind, aren't I in hell? I'm so repressed, I'm in hell. And the opposite is you know, which is the devil side of it, I suppose, is say, if you live all the pleasures that you want, you know, you'll, um, well, actually they say you'll go to hell, but let's just say you believe you're going to go to a better place, your place, because you're living in pleasure. But actually, in your mind, as we just talked about, you're in hell. Because, you know, it's completely unbalanced and the mind doesn't really know how to act on that. So, 
You get to the hell world as a result of not knowing what you want, as a result of thoughtless pursuit of pleasure, which ends you eventually in the pursuit of pain. So when you're in the hell world, that's where you want to be. And that's it. That's where you want to be. So then the question is to clarify once more, what do you want? If you understand, first of all, that you don't want absolute power, you don't want absolute control, you want some control. We always love controlling something that is not really under our control. You know, that bit of challenge, that bit of mystery, yes. When something is partially under your control, but isn't. Then you have the same sort of relationship with it that you have when you have someone you love. If the motivation of power gaining disappears, what other motivation takes place in the origination of its actions? It seems to me that the answer here is compassion, simply because when you want to relate to another living being, what you're really asking of them is that they be in the same situation as you are. You want to meet and encounter someone else who has your problems, your fears, and your delights. You don't want a doll. You don't want another you. You know, you do want another you, another self, because that would be at least as surprising to you as you are, because... You don't know who you are. Nobody knows who they really are. I mean, my state of mind is always changing. I mean, you could disagree with my wife would disagree with that. She'll probably say I'm very annoying. But <laughs> I think I'm always changing, man. That's all I'm going to say. There really is not a greater satisfaction than you can imagine than that kind of personal relationship wherein you can trust a being who is other than you and not under your control to do what you want because they like it. You don't want to be in a relationship with someone that you control because that's not love. As you are on your side, you'd want to do in your way to give pleasure to the other person. Now, that's compassion in the real sense of the word, feeling with, with and through someone else. Well, the whole trick is that you lose control for a while of the situation. And I say, I throw the ball to you. Now it's yours. The more power you give away, the more you other yourself, the more of a self you are, because self and other are reciprocal. So you find that people through a sadhana or yoga discipline have overcome their ego, have transcended the ego, are tremendously strong entities. You would think theoretically that they would be non-entities and to lack entirely, entirely what psychologists call ego strength. But actually, they are nothing of the kind. They are very, very strong characters because the more they have given up, the more they get it. I do agree with that to an extent. Um, I do always take a little bit of issue with, with the, the Buddhist perspective on this in the sense that I think it's I think the problem with just getting over your ego, and he says you're a non-entity in the world, and I do agree with that, but if we look at someone like Nietzsche, the philosopher, his explanation of Buddhism was it's like Christianity, but only the the way of trying to escape the world is passive. You don't want to do anything. You would watch your wife being harmed or a family member being hurt and you would be free. But actually, I think Alan Watts makes a good point here and he says, you're not actually an entity. You've just given up trying to control things. And um, I often meet people like that who are able to let that go and flow and you feel that from them and, and you feel that strong character and that wisdom, I suppose, you feel it, don't you? And I try to do that, but I'm always envious of people that really have that lockdown when you meet them because you, you want to be around them, don't you? 
there's something magnetic because you always feel there's something I can learn from that. Ultimately, I, I think that's that's what it is. And um, I think we'll move on to one final speech. He does say a bit more on that one, but ultimately, you know, I think you can look it up. <laughs> we'll, we'll go for one more. This one's probably a little bit more complex. Um, we'll see how we get on with it. It's quite a longer one, but we'll skim through. So this one's about how you look at yourself existing in the world. And because I often see these days because we people say we're so disconnected from nature and you know we're destroying nature. And I always get the the sentiment from it that these people don't really think that they exist in the world and they're not part of nature and they're not part of everything. So Alan Watts here explains my thoughts on that, I suppose, really well. So we'll just go through a little bit. People say there was a primordial explosion, primordial, excuse me, explosion, an enormous bang billions of years ago, which flung all the galaxies into space. Well, let's just take that for the sake of argument and say that was the way it happened. It's like you took a bottle of ink and you threw it at a wall, smash, and all that ink spread. And in the middle, it's dense, isn't it? And as it gets out on the edge, the little droplets get finer and finer and make more complicated patterns, see? So in the same way, there was a big bang at the beginning of things and it spread. And you and I sitting here in this room as complicated human beings are way, way out in the fringe of that bang. We are complicated little patterns at the end of it. Very interesting. But so we define ourselves as being only that. If you think that you are only inside your skin, you define yourself as one very complicated little curlicue, way out of the edge of that explosion, way out in space and way out in time. Billions of years ago, you were a big bang, but now you're a complicated human being. And then we take that and we cut ourselves off and don't feel that we're still the big bang, but you are. And that's my point that I started with, just cutting that off there a little bit. We are part of that bang. You know, when we hear static and we say, well, that's leftover explosion from the Big Bang, we don't think, yeah, we're part of that. We're inside of that bang. We don't ever think that. We just think that it's something that's happened and we've been dropped inside of it. But I don't know why we think that, right? <laughs> it's very, very unusual way to think about it when you sit down and really think about that. And we cut ourselves off and don't feel that we're still the Big Bang. But you are. Depends how you define yourself. You actually, if this is the way things started, if there was a Big Bang in the beginning, you are not something that's a result of the Big Bang. You are not something that is a sort of puppet on the end of the process. You are still the process. You are the Big Bang. The original force of the universe coming on is whoever you are. What an empowering statement. When I meet you, I see not just what you define yourself as, Mr. and so-and-so, Miss and so-and-so, Mrs. and so-and-so. And I really think that because I often say, hear people say, and I've been guilty of this myself, you know, who are you? And you say, I'm this, I'm that, depending on the job you do. Well, it's a bit like an ant in a, in a way. And it? Well, I'm the one that scouts, I'm the one that digs. And it's like, God, is that really, really what we're doing there? 
I see every one of you as the primordial energy of the universe coming on at me in this particular way. I know I'm that too, but we've learned to define ourselves as separate from it. In other words, when you really start to see things and you look at an old paper cup and you go into the nature of what it is to see what vision is or what smell is or what touches, you realize that the vision of the paper cup is the brilliant light of the cosmos. Nothing could be brighter. 10,000 suns couldn't be brighter. Only they're hidden in the sense that all the points of the infinite light are so tiny. When you see them in the cup, they don't blow your eyes out. See, the source of all light is in the eye. If there were no eyes in the world, the sun would not be light. So if I hit as hard as I can on a drum, which has no skin, it makes no noise. So if a sun shines in the world with no eyes, it's like a hand beating on a skinless drum, no light. You evoke the light out of the universe in the same way you, by nature of having a soft skin, evoke hardness out of wood. Wood is only hard in relation to a soft skin. It's your eardrum that evokes noise out of the air. You, by being this organism, call into being this whole universe of light and colour and hardness and heaviness and everything. I mean, a lot of that is, you know, really quite emotive there. And that's the end of that particular point. But there is another point that he made that I, I do want to say as well. He said that, he said it better than I did, but I'm going to explain it anyway. If you... The real problem, the way that we look at the world now is that years ago with religion, they would have laws and that's the way that you should live because that's the way the universe existed. But science came along and used evidence and ways and means. And I'm not going to sit for a second and say, well, that was bad. What I would like to say is that what I think is we've taken a similar model and updated it. So Alan Watts made this point that if you look at everything under a microscope and you keep looking for the smaller and smaller and smaller thing, you'll get to a point where you get to the smallest thing that can't get any smaller. And then you have to ask yourself, well, what was that made? What is that? Why, what is that doing? Because we can't explain what it is, really. Because there's nothing to explain it by association. We can only say there's something bigger than that. So... And it's the same thing <clears throat> with something like the laws of physics. Well, he, he explained it as the fully automatic model and the antique model. With the antique model, everything is created. There's a creator and he's created it all and you're all antiques and you've been made into this world. With the fully automatic model, you, every, it doesn't need the God it doesn't need the person to create it all. It just runs by itself. But it's the same thing. Because if you look at some of the laws of physics, okay, if the laws exist, then who made the laws? And that's the, that's the point there, isn't it? I mean, physicists will say there are laws and that's how they work and they can't be changed. E equals mc squared, you know, energy at the speed of light. Well, I always go back, if you go back to the 1800s, they say, if, they said, if you go back to, if you go, if you went over 50 miles per hour, your internal organs would rupture and you would die. And I made this point to my science teacher of all things many years ago. And I made that point and he said, well, you know, we didn't really have all the right instruments to be able to work anything out back then. So, you know, that's why it was wrong. 
And I just thought, well, what makes you think that we've got them now to calculate what the fastest moving thing in this galaxy or whole universe is? Right? He didn't really have a response to that <laughs> because I think he didn't like that. But um, ultimately, I think that's really the point, isn't it? If you're going to create laws of physics and you can create laws, well, we define laws of intelligence. I mean, animals don't have laws. They might have ways that they are, but they're mostly instinct. But if you're going to create laws, you need intelligence. That's the way that we understand laws. So if there are laws and contents of life in the universe, then what made those? Because it had to be intelligence, right? I don't know. I'm not saying that it is. Because I think the only thing that we really can say is, I don't know. Okay, right. Well, <laughs> I suppose that's that then. Ultimately, that's, you know, that's Alan Watts. I think I could go more into it. I think I've said a lot. I think the guy is absolutely revolutionary and I can't believe it's taken me 50 years to realize. Admittedly, I wasn't alive for those 50 years, but I can't believe it's taken me that long to find such an absolute genius, really. Um, I know it's been a bit different today. Um, just me. Um, instead of there being two people and there being a bit of argument discussion, I might do these a little bit every now and again if I find something that I find really interesting and I can sort of run through by myself. But um, back to normal next time, I'd imagine. Thanks very much for listening to me ramble on about philosophy. If you do like it, if you don't, you're probably no longer with us, so it doesn't really matter. Thank you for staying around. Hope you enjoyed the show. This is Drive Me To Your Leader with Mr. Red. Please join us again next time. Thank you very much. <laughs>